Good morning. Happy Easter. Great to see some new faces out there this morning. I want to specifically extend a welcome to those of you that this is your very first week here. I just want to say I'm so glad that you're here, and I hope that this message is a blessing to you as well as to our regular church family. So last week, we started studying this chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we saw that Paul was writing to this group of people who were skeptical that after death, they would rise from death. So they had grasped this reality of Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus had come, he had lived a perfect life, he had died a sacrificial death, and then he had risen again three days later. But their loved ones had just died. They were brand new Christians, their loved ones had died, and having seen their loved ones lowered six feet beneath the dirt, they were having trouble believing that they would rise again, that Jesus could do that. And so last week, we were encouraged that our hope in Jesus is certain, that as a result of his death and resurrection, we do in fact have hope. But there remains this question for many of us. And the question is, do I really want anything to do with the hope that Jesus offers? And so I've heard some of you ask questions like this. I've heard relatives of mine ask questions like this. I've asked questions like this myself. Will I get to play golf in heaven? Will there be purposeful work in heaven or I'm just going to be sitting around playing a harp? I don't even like harps. Am I going to have a body or am I going to be sort of a disembodied spirit who's just floating in space singing the praises of God? And if we're honest, the vision that we've been given of hope isn't something that's that appealing for us. And so what Paul is telling us this morning is he's saying not only is our hope certain, our hope is real. We saw a glimpse of this just after Jesus resurrection. There's kind of a strange story in the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote this in chapter 24, verses 42 through 44. They gave him, that's Jesus, a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, why is that in the Bible? Why something as mundane and ordinary as the resurrected Jesus eating a piece of fish, why did that get recorded as God's word? And Jesus says the reason that it's recorded as God's word is that it is a fulfillment of all that is written in the law of Moses. Jesus is saying, I'm eating a piece of fish in front of you to show you that our hope is real. I have a body. I'm not a disembodied spirit. I'm real. And I'm going to a real place called heaven. And there will be a real place called the new heavens and the new earth. And you will dwell in that place 
forever. And the hope that Jesus is reminding of us and the hope that Paul reminds us of is simple and yet profound. He says this, we will have bodies. That's the big idea. We'll have bodies, exclamation point. All right, here we go. First question, how will we get new bodies? Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 41. Okay, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So here's what is on the Corinthian church's mind. They have just come to Christ and they have just buried their loved ones. They have this very vivid image in their mind of their loved ones being lowered beneath the dirt and the dirt being piled on top of their coffin. And their thought is resurrection for them is now impossible. It's over. It's finished. There's no hope for them. They're dead. And death in their mind is final. So in their mind, their loved one's bodies were buried like a rock would be buried under the soil. A rock remains a rock. And Paul is saying, I want to change the image for you. I want you to understand that when a Christian is buried under the ground, that they are not buried like a rock. They're buried like a seed. A seed, if you don't look at it very closely, looks about the same as a rock. But a seed is very different because it has living properties in it. And so I've never seen a person who takes a tomato seed, and plants it in the ground and then weeps because they lost the seed. Oh my goodness, what have I done? I loved that seed. No, you plant a seed in hope. No one ever misses the seed because the seed is meant to be planted in the ground and then it grows into what it is supposed to be. Paul is saying, when your loved ones and you are buried into the ground, you're buried into the ground in hope. All you have to do is wait. Counterintuitively, the way that you get a new body is you have to die. So death is the pathway to life, not the end of life. Guys, this text in scripture is very personal to me because 
it rescued me from one of the most horrible moments of my life. So five years ago, Melissa and I lost our sixth child, Jude Wesley Stevenson. He was just over five months old. And I found myself with my other five kids and my wife standing by his grave in Eden Prairie with a small white casket sitting in front of me. And I was tempted to believe in that moment that that was the end, that all hope was lost. I get where the Corinthians are coming from. How can anything good come from this? And my friend Mark was there and he read this passage. And it all of a sudden dawned on me. This is the perfect opportunity for hope. I mean, what better image? Seeds are really small. Babies' bodies are really small. He's the perfect seed. This is amazing. One day, I will stand in that spot with my family and my son Jude will bust out of the ground. Hope is not lost. Hope is found in those moments because death is not the end. It is the pathway to life. We will get new bodies, but first, this body has to die. And so this message is for all of us. There's something about the holidays, isn't it, that brings back all these vivid memories of the people that we've lost. Maybe there's going to be an empty seat at your table today. And I invite you to let your mind go from the tragedy of the situation to the hope of the gospel by seeing that person who died in Christ as a seed, not a rock. Okay, so how will we get new bodies through death? What will our new bodies be like? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 50. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
Okay, so often when we think about what our new body is going to be like in heaven, we're either thinking about a ghost-like creature, a disembodied spirit, or maybe the worst image is a chubby little cherub playing a harp. And both of those are not hopeful for us. It seems like I'm trading in like a decent body for something far worse. I don't know about you, but that's the connotation that the word spiritual has for me. And Paul wants to rescue us from that type of thinking. He's contrasting natural and spiritual, not contrasting real with immaterial, but contrasting material with what I'm going to call super material. He's saying that your resurrected body will be better than your current body. C.S. Lewis describes this in one of my favorite books of his called The Great Divorce. And he pictures people from hell visiting heaven. And the people from hell are the ones who are sub-material. They're ghastly creatures. You can see right through them. The people in heaven are made out of steel. So when we think about our natural body putting on a spiritual body, we should think of Clark Kent becoming Superman or Tobey Maguire becoming Spider-Man, not you becoming a chubby little guy playing a harp. We are going to get real bodies that can do amazing things. Things unthought of or unheard of in this life. This is going to happen by God's grace. These bodies are going to be indestructible and eternal. Our first body has to die and be buried in the ground in order for it to grow into what God intends it to be. But our resurrected body cannot die, but remains forever. All your regrets will be gone. All your hurt and all the pain in your soul will fly away. You will lose nothing that you love in this life, but will gain everything in that life. Okay, imagine this scenario with me, if you will. It's really hard to describe what it will be like to be in a resurrected body in a perfect place. But here's my best shot at it. I want you to think about your life, the best moments of your life, in a number of different categories. So maybe it's like your best moment at a sporting event when your team won. That feeling of victory. Like everything that I hoped about this situation is now coming true. So think about that moment. Now think about the most beautiful piece of music 
that you've ever heard. I hope it's classical music. Think about the moment at that concert or listen to it in the car or listening to it at your house or throwing your AirPods on and, and you just love that piece of music and you're, you're listening to that piece of music. Now think about the best moment that you have ever had with a friend. The type of friend where you're kind of unselfconscious and you're just laughing and you're free. Maybe you're crying, but you're just immensely enjoying that moment. And think about the best meal that you've ever had. The taste, the smells, how you wanted to enjoy each bite slowly so that you could savor every moment of having that meal. Okay, dare I bring this one in? Think about your best sexual experience. Some of you don't think about that, all right? (laughs) But the most intimate moment that you ever had with somebody. Now here's what we are supposed to do when we read texts like this. Combine all of those moments in your imagination into one moment. And that gets at what we will be experiencing forever, except we have to multiply it by a million. And this is what God has prepared for those who love him. He is saying to us in this text, your body is not capable of experiencing the pleasure that I have designed you to be a part of forever. God is the furthest thing from a killjoy. He wants what is absolutely best for you. Look at what we read at the very beginning of this book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. It says, As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So even as we think about this, even as we dream about this, even as we try to imagine what it would be like, God is saying, you can't get anywhere near what it's going to be like. But then he says this amazing thing. These things God has revealed to us through his spirit. Here's what I'm saying, Christian. Right now, yes, you're imagining with your mind, but you know in your heart. And what I've I've asked the Holy Spirit to do in this room this morning is to specifically apply this hope to each person so that you would walk away from this morning not rehearsing the terrible circumstances of your life that are really there, but rehearsing the wondrous hope that we have in the gospel message. So what are our bodies going to be like? They're going to be amazing. And the third thing we're asking of the text is a really important question. When will we get new bodies? Okay, you're telling me that we'll get new bodies, that they're going to be amazing. When? 51 through 58. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed 
in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. But when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church, but he's also aware that he's writing scripture. So he's writing not just to his generation, but also to ours. And he says in the text, we shall not all sleep. Not every Christian is going to die. And we have every reason to think that we would be the generation where Jesus would come back when we're still on the earth. And how would this happen? When would this take place? And Paul says something that could ignite hope in the coldest of hearts. In the twinkling of an eye. You know how long it takes an eye to twinkle? I don't know either, but it's real fast. (laughs) Here's what we're supposed to do as we look at this text. We're supposed to move to the edge of our seat. And we're supposed to think, Jesus could come back now. Jesus could come back when we're driving home. Jesus could come back this week. And here's what's going to be amazing and kind of frustrating about that. Amazing. Because we are going to become what we were meant to be in an instant. I say kind of frustrating because there's basically kind of three different stages in the Christian life. You've got justification, which is where God declares us righteous because of what Jesus has done alone. We don't believe that we're justified, made right before God because of our works, but because of what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection alone. So we put our hope in him. He's our representative. Yes, I'm justified. Happens in a moment. Right now, we're slogging through this concept called sanctification. Sanctification is both the work of the Holy Spirit in us and requires our own effort. And whenever something requires us, it's very imperfect. And so here's how all of us feel who are Christians. It's like, I became a Christian 25 years ago, and I've moved like an inch in sanctification. I'm not who I want to be. By the way, I'm not talking hypothetically. I'm talking about me. I'm talking real-life experience. I'm too angry. I'm too proud. I struggle with many of the things that I 
have always struggled with. And I hate that. And I want this new body. And what's going to happen is we're going to move the needle by the power of the Holy Spirit like this far. And then in the twinkling of an eye, when King Jesus comes back, he is going to move the needle to the moon. Instantly. The best thing about heaven is we're not going to want to sin anymore. All we're going to want is what Jesus wants for us. Flesh is gone. Desire for sin is gone. We'll only always want to love one another. And so our hope in fighting the fight of sanctification is not that we will perfect ourselves, but that we are coming in line with God's purpose for our lives. We have an opportunity during our short time on this earth to be grateful for what Jesus has done and will do in us. And so we take on this attitude of being steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but because Jesus has already accomplished it and it's basically already finished. Okay, so I want you to imagine with me this scenario. So here's what I'm doing here. I'm imagining that Jesus comes back in the very ordinary moment of one person's life. And the person that I have in mind, as I'm going to read this, is a young mom. And you'll see very quickly, she's in the middle of changing a diaper. Very mundane, ordinary moment. And I'm imagining that Jesus could come back at a moment like that in all of our lives. So here's what she's saying to herself, to her baby, to God, in her mind. You've got to be kidding me. Seems like the 500th diaper I've changed this week. Seriously. You're going to scream at me after all I've done for you? Great. Poop on the leg again. Need more wet wipes? Only one left, of course. I'll have to reach with my toe to get the other box so he doesn't fall off the changing table. Ugh. I look down for three seconds and you pee? all over that diaper and your clothes and yourself, you look pleased, I am not. Fine, I'll put you on the ground. New onesie out of the top drawer. New diaper too, almost done. Okay, finally. Of course, the diaper pail is full. I'll put you in your crib and run out to the garage to throw this whole stinking bag away. No garbage can in the garage. It's in the driveway. Trash day. At the end of the slushy, snowy, long driveway. <laughs> Got to put my shoes on. Where are they? Who moved them? Running back up to the bedroom. Can I just catch a break? I hate this stupid life. Sorry, Lord. I know I'm stomping down my driveway. I'm mad. And I'm chucking the trash in the trash can. Running back into my child. What's that sound? A horn? It's loud. It's beautiful. It's you. No way. It's you. It's actually you. 
in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, on an ordinary day like today, maybe in a mundane moment, maybe in the worst moment of your life, Jesus is coming back. Why hasn't he fixed the world already? Why doesn't he just come back now? As far as I can tell from the story of Scripture, a heart consoled is better than a heart never broken. He could come back now. He doesn't. And we can trust him. We can hold on. We can have hope. That's what Easter is all about. It is not hope in our meager self-effort or sloppy religious performance. Our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us victory, not by our own hands, not by our own efforts, not by our own repentance, not by our own tears, not by our own life, but through Jesus Christ. This hope is for everyone because all you need to receive this hope is the need to receive this hope. Paul says, in another place, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All we are earning by our lives is death. Because every act that we do is tainted with sin. Every motivation that we have is impure and imperfect. We are earning death for ourselves. And God does not solve the problem by asking us to now earn eternal life. But instead, he has given us a free gift in his son. If you have never received this good news this morning, I invite you to hold out the empty hands of faith, to recognize that you are hopeless and helpless and full of sin, like a diseased person needing a cure, needing a miracle. And I have never met, met someone who called out to Jesus, who opened their hands and asked for the free gift, who he did not give it to. He is generous. He is kind. He is our Savior. We have great hope. Let's pray. King Jesus, here we are, another Easter. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. 
but we fear no evil. For you are with us. You are the risen Christ. You are alive. And you tell us that in the twinkling of an eye, you will come back. And so we move from apathy and cynicism and doubt and discouragement to the edge of our seat. And we say, Jesus, would you fill us with hope so that we can fill others with hope? We look away from ourselves. We look to you once again. And we say, thank you that you have done for us what we could have never done for ourselves. God, I pray for that person who is still clinging on to their guilt or their shame or even worse, their supposed righteousness or good works. Ask that they would see that you can save the worst of sinners and the proudest of people who will come to you. And would you draw many people to yourself this morning in this room and in many rooms around the world. In Jesus' name.